everybody's happy too Get my mind off the past and won't this night to last I'm driving away my blues Hello listeners and welcome to the show. This is Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest is Robert E. Price, author of The Bakersfield Sound, How a Generation of Displaced Okies Revolutionized American Music. He writes for the Bakersfield Californian, and the book came out of a long series of articles he wrote for the paper starting in the mid-90s. We recorded this interview in Bakersfield, in a historic hotel that was built for the 1920s oil boom, just one of California's many mass get-rich-quick schemes. It was January 2020 and pouring rain outside. We talked about how this small farm and oil city in California's Central Valley became a hotbed of musical creativity and a real rival to Nashville as the country music capital of the world, and about whether it's fair to confine the Bakersfield sound under the country label at all. So, here we are in Bakersfield, things are about to happen. When is it? What's going on? And what was the spark that set it off? Well, you start with a population of folks who have come over during the Dust Bowl exodus out of Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri. And they've all come over in the 30s and the 40s and even in the, in the early 50s. But what really makes it ripe for what was to come was World War II, because you had a lot of folks of the same age as those Okies, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, and they are coming to work in the shipyards and the aircraft factories of Northern and Southern California, the shipyards of Richmond and the aircraft factories in Santa Monica and also over in Palmdale in the desert. So what do these people do? I mean, they're by and large youngish people. So what do these people do for entertainment in the evening? They go out and they dance. And there are bands that have moved in. Some of them, uh, members of the bands are also aircraft uh, and shipyard workers, but you have bands that have come in to entertain these folks uh, in their in the evening hours, and it's people like Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, who are probably the most famous of those bands, and uh, Spade Cooley in Southern California. The war ends, we win, prosperity, uh, you know, sort of enriches California and the nation. The Okies have stayed, and now the people who came out for the wartime industries have stayed as well. So you have this this young, uh, vibrant population uh, of optimistic, what do we do now, people. Mm. And and Southern California takes off, the Bay Area takes off, and Bakersfield absorbs some of that as well. So they were listening to Bob Wills, that, that, that kind of thing. That was previous to the Bakersfield sound. That was Western Swing? Uh, late, late, yeah, Western Swing, okay. late 30s, um, big in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Wills kept going into the late seventies, maybe even the early eighties, I think it's when he finally died. But, but his heyday was, uh, forties and fifties and, uh, people like Merle Haggard just idolized Bob Wills. And you hear, you know, people talk about, you know, what is the Bakersfield sound? Uh, you know, the two practitioners are Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, but they really don't sound all that much alike. Buck Owens kind of has this rockability feel, maybe spiced up a little bit with a little bit of Mexican Tejano field worker stuff, but mostly rockabilly. Merle Haggard has a uh, Western swing vibe, kind of a jazz country vibe. So you look at those two and you say, well, what's the Bakersfield sound? These guys, you know, there's a little bit of overlap. They both like Fender Telecasters, uh, but they're very different. Well, Bakersfield sound is not a sound. It's a time and a place. It was like, you know, Paris in the 1920s when you had, you know, Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway and Pablo Picasso. I mean, what 
what brings them together and what dispersed them afterward. It, it was just this sort of magical time that came and went. And uh, that was kind of the case with Bakersfield as well. All these people just showed up at the same time, fed off each other, refined their sound with each other's help, generally supportive of each other. It was not so much a competitive thing, although there was some of that. So it was a time and a place, not a not a sound per se. Yeah. Where is this happening? Everybody's dancing to this music. Well, I mean, if you go back far enough, you go to the uh, labor camps. Shafter had a labor camp. Um, Porterville had a labor camp, and of, and of course Arvin had a labor camp. There are labor camps all up and down. And these were uh, California, set up sort of during the Dust Bowl to deal with the, the influx of migrant workers. Exactly. These are federal labor camps. They are they're staffed by federal workers, and they sort of function as housing and also. Um, Labor contractors kind of worked with them to give these folks stuff to do. Very strict rules, though. There was no drinking allowed, you know, no late noise, but a limited amount of entertainment. So what they would do is have they would have, they call them sings, where they would just get together and play guitar and sing. A woman who lived in San Francisco by the name of Faith Petrick, who just actually just died just a few years ago, she worked at the... Uh, at the Arvin labor camp back in the like 1940. And she was determined to get these people entertained with the likes of like Burl Ives. And they kind of shrugged off Burl Ives because they had this, this oaky stuff that they had brought over. So anyway, there was Robert Sonkin and uh, his partner from uh, city college of New York. They came out in 1940 with their recording equipment and they uh, recorded these people in the various labor camps. My name is Nathan Judd. It's an incredible thing they did, a wonderful thing they did, because it preserved a sound, which can be kind of tough to listen to, to our modern ears, but they preserved this sound for posterity. I don't know how much prosperity was involved, but posterity. <laughs> anyway, so, so that kind of uh, evolved into the clubs. Uh, you had people that were working the, uh, the oil fields up in the Oildale area, but you also had agriculture all, all around the valley, of course. And at the end of the day, these people are looking for something to do, and they would go to uh, the little local honky-tonk. And by about 1949, 1950, 51, uh, you had a scene that was really developing all up and down California, but uh, very much so in, in Bakersfield. You had the Blackboard Cafe, you had the Lucky Spot, you had uh, the Clover Club, and they all had their own distinct crowds that hung out there, and they had their own house bands, and they had their all their own personalities. But there was that evolution that took place over about a decade from the labor camps and, and generally from the Oki population into the early 50s with the honky-tonks. Does any of that survive? None of those clubs survive. My favorite story, or my least favorite story, is the Blackboard, which was the king of all the, all the clubs. Uh, famous performers who were like on their way from Las Vegas to L.A. or vice versa, and they would stop in at the Blackboard. They would appear on uh, some of the local television shows, Cousin Herb Henson, Jimmy Thomason had TV shows. They would appear on those shows. They would all play that night at places like the Blackboard and the Lucky Spot. Speaking of home, folks, you folks that call Bakersfield home, there's a big treat for you tonight out at the Beardsley Ballroom. Because starting at 8.30, it's a four-hour dancing party by Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys for you and your entire family in the Beardsley Ballroom in Bakersfield tonight. In 2001, the blackboard was torn down. It was on property owned by the Kern County Museum. What? And yes, so a museum tore down 
its most prized museum piece in my mind. And so it's a it's a piece of grass right now. Oh, it just kills you. But but other other clubs same way. You know, I lead a Bakersfield Sound tour. I pile people people actually want to go on a bus tour to look at these locations. And, and we'll drive around and I'll point to, see this this uh, empty lot here? This used to be this. And over here we have an empty lot that used to be this. So uh, there's very little left, Ouch. sadly. So it seems like the scene was mostly kind of a live thing. You would go to the honky-tonks and hear the bands. But um, what was the role of TV and radio? Well, the entertainers who appeared on the radio shows were basically working for free. They would come in and they would play their records, they would talk, and they would plug their show that night. That was how they got paid, by getting people to come out to the show uh-huh. that night. Great deal for the radio stations, you know, very low employee overhead or talent overhead. But radio was a prime mover for all this stuff. For the, It fed into the live scene that was here. Television came to the Valley about 1953. And in those early days, TV stations, local TV stations, they, there was very little syndicated programming. There was very little, you know, the networks were just starting themselves. So there was, they had, they had to fill the the broadcast day from you know 5 a.m. until you know 11 p.m. or whatever it was with something. They had to generate their own uh, programming. So that's what you would have like romper room. Every town had its own romper room with Miss Miss Susie from you know from the kindergarten, and, and she would uh, have the kids in there for the live kindergarten. Or preschool, really. Mm-hmm. So you had romper room. You had the early morning farm report. Some farmer would uh, would come on the air and talk about you know what the weather was going to be like or whatever they talked about. And and then you had the after school clown, the guy who would uh, come on and play cartoons for the kids. Mm-hmm. Every town had one of those as well. I remember uh, in Sacramento it was uh, Sergeant Sacto. Every every town, large and small, had something like that. And then in Bakersfield, you also had. The country music shows, and they would come on about forty-five minutes long. Uh, the shows were, and they would come on right before the evening news. And uh, cousin Herb went to KERO TV, I think it was KERO TV, Channel Ten, and said, "Hey, how about it? You need some programming? Here I am. I play piano. I've got a band." And he convinced them to put him on the air five days a week, forty-five minutes, right before the evening news. K, uh, the call letters have changed, but there was another station that did the same thing with Jimmy Thomason, who was sort of a Western swing fiddler. All three TV stations had their own live country music shows, and they would have live commercials too. There was uh, Gailey's Marine Supply that would, uh, at, at the appointed time during the day, they would open up the big doors and they would wheel like a, a, a fishing boat onto the middle of the set. <laughs> and you know, and, and uh, Don Gailey, who's still around, told me that one time a, a bum was hanging around and saw this boat, you know, outside the, the Tahoon Hotel, which is, the, which is when, where they then sh- shot the show. And he hopped inside the boat. And when they brought it in live into the studio, he hopped out of the, <laughs> out of the boat. But uh, the wonders of uh, the joys, the joys of live TV. Yeah. Cousin Herb would also bring in a lot of the time people who were performing at the Blackboard or whatever, the, the better known people would come and appear on the show. And then you go have dinner, and then you go go over to the blackboard of the lucky spot and, and perform that night. Now, when you live in the country, everybody is your neighbor. On this one thing you can't rely. They'll all come see you and never, never leave you. Say you all come see us by and by. You all come. Yeah. 
So that's the theme song to The Trading Post, Cousin Herb's TV show. Wasn't necessarily representative of what's going on in the clubs at the time, or even the rest of Cousin Herb's own show. Well, that's really bluegrass, you know? The clubs really played a lot of rock and roll. Buck Owens said he was influenced by Buddy Holly and Little Richard. I mean, Little Richard was influencing the the Bakersfield sound. Not so much the bluegrass. I mean, you didn't hear banjos in, in Bakersfield music all that much. I think Bakersfield became kind of the hot spot. And I should say, by the way, a lot of the recording took place at Capitol Records in Los Angeles. I mean, mm. we call it the Bakersfield sound, but you know, it's uh, it's sort of the Southern California sound to a great extent. So in the fifties, Nashville got freaked out by Elvis Presley. Elvis had been a, like a country artist. He he'd, he'd been a protege of Hank Snow's, but he came out and started shaking the hips, and everything changed. And he kind of turned this corner into rock and roll. So the Nashville establishment wanted to kind of carve out a a distinct sound as far away from Elvis as they could get. So they kind of went to this orchestrated lush violins and the Jordanaires with their backing vocals. It stopped sounding like the hillbilly music that it had been early on. And Bakersfield wasn't really having any of that. There was the, the rock and roll and the Little Richard influences, and there was no Jordanaires or violin orchestras happening here. It was all pretty pretty rough and tumble, and the public jumped on it. I mean, we like Patsy Cline, but we want some uh, something with a little foot tap to it, with a little twang, and Buck Owens had it. And a large part of the uh, record-buying public turned to Bakersfield and said, that's the stuff we want. The guy's succession of, of number one records was just astounding. And all I gotta do is act naturally Love's gonna live here again Oh, my heart skips a beat Together again I don't care if the sun don't shine I've got a tiger by the tail Before you go Only Buck Owens and the Buckaroos had 15 country number ones between 1963 and 1967, and those are the titles, clipped from the songs themselves, mostly from the very first line. It takes people like you to make people like me. In the days before Shazam, or YouTube, or even music podcasts, that is how you make sure people know what to ask for at the record shop. This is song number 16, a disappointment that peaked at number 2 in January of 1968. And this is Buck's next number 1, song number 17, the very next single, three months later. Oh, and if you thought of the Beatles in there, you're right. And Buck did it first. Or never, how long will these heartaches linger on? And how long will my baby be gone? It was uh, just kind of amazing that Merle Haggard just kind of happened along, creating his own way. I mean, he didn't like follow in Buck Owens' footsteps at all. Buck was already sort of a, a low-level star by the time Merle Haggard kind of broke out. So you had these two very distinct 
unrelated stories that merged together in the early 60s. The song I remember was Tiger by the Tail. I didn't really listen to country music my, myself, but that was a crossover hit. I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. Well, I'm a losing weight and I'm turning mighty pale. Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail. Well, I thought the day I met you, you were meek as a lamb. Just the kind to fit my dreams and plans. Now the pace we're living takes the wind from my sails. And it looks like I've got a tiger by the tail. I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. The thing that made Buck Owens so, well, one of the things that made him so distinctive was uh, Don Rich. Don Rich started off as a fiddle player. Buck Owens was the guitar player. Don joined the band and Buck showed him a few things and he said within like a year or so, uh, Don was the better guitar player. But it was those high harmony vocals that really set apart the sound of the Buckaroos. This is a place where the Appalachian influence really shows up. High harmony vocals are really characteristic of old time music. And by high, I don't just mean that they're high in pitch, although they are. I mean that the harmony line is typically above the melody line rather than below it. Check this out. I was standing by the window on one cold and cloudy day. And I saw the hearse come rolling for to carry my mother away. That's the Carter family from 1935, and just that song holds so much of the complexity of country music. Will the Circle Be Unbroken is a Christian hymn written in 1907 by the white British hymn writer Ada Habershon. The original melody was by a white American composer named Charles Gabriel, although it was honestly sort of stodgy, and nobody seems to have stuck to the sheet music too closely. By 1930, five years before the Carters cut it, the song had entered the African-American gospel tradition. This is the Silverleaf Quartet of Norfolk, Virginia, with basically the tune we know today. Story, will you 
join them in their bliss. Build a circle, be unbroken, by and by, by and by, by and by, in a better home awaiting, in the sky, in the sky. It's not known where A.P. Carter picked the song up, but he reworked it a little, including changing Will to Can in the title, and copyrighted it under his own name, something he did a lot, including with a lot of songs he collected on his trips around Appalachia with the black guitarist Leslie Riddle. They would get local musicians to perform songs for them, Carter noted down the words, Riddle memorized the music, and then the songs would show up on Carter Family Records, copyright A.P. Carter. Just to clear things up, AP did also compose entirely original songs, sometimes with Riddle, who also wrote and collected songs on his own, some of which he taught to the Carters. The Fogue Process. AP, Maybell, and Sarah Carter were born and raised in southwest Virginia. AP and Sarah were married in 1915, and Maybell was Sarah's cousin and married AP's brother Ezra. Leslie Riddle was born in North Carolina in 1905 and grew up in Tennessee. Riddle and the Carters didn't perform together. Segregation might have had something to do with it, but they seemed to be friends and they played together in private. Riddle played slide guitar with a pocket knife, a technique that Maybell Carter picked up from him and that was invented by a Hawaiian guitarist named Joseph Kakuku who had started experimenting with a metal slide in 1889. By the 1960s, the historical memory of the Hawaiian origins of the slide guitar had largely been obliterated, but in the 20s and 30s, blues artists commonly referred to it as Hawaiian style. The Carter family is often called the first family of country music. They started recording in 1927. Their first session was August 1st, and Jimmy Rogers had his first recording session in that same makeshift studio in Bristol, Tennessee, the very next day. Over the next decade and a half, the Carters made scores of records, many of which sold thousands of copies. They had several regular radio shows over the years where they performed live on the air, including a couple years on a high-powered border radio station in Mexico, just across the river from Del Rio, Texas. In 1943, Maybell and her daughters Anita, June, and Helen formed a new group together. They joined the Grand Ole Opry in the 1950s, and June married Johnny Cash in 1968. At least five of the grandchildren of the original Carters are professional country musicians, and Will the Circle Be Unbroken is standard country repertoire pretty much in the form the Carters sang it. Leslie Riddle got married and moved to Rochester, New York in 1942, and soon after sold his guitar and disappeared from music for more than two decades. In the mid-1960s, Mike Seeger tracked him down after hearing of him from Maybell Carter, and the result was a series of performances at folk festivals and eventually Riddle's only solo record, which was finally released in 1993, 15 years after he died. Well, it's one... Kind favor I ask of you Well, that's one kind favor I ask of you 
Well, it's one kind favor I ask of you. Please see that my grave is kept clean. There are so many ingredients in country music. Those Appalachian tunes came from England, Scotland, Ireland, Tin Pan Alley, Broadway, and minstrel shows. There's a very strong streak of blues. Cowboy songs from Texas and Mexico brought in polkas, waltzes, corridos, rancheras. Gospel music of many types. The banjo, a Caribbean instrument whose roots are West African and Arab. The steel guitar, invented by an indigenous Hawaiian guitarist and dispersed by Hawaiian musicians worldwide in probably the biggest musical craze of the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. Fiddles and accordions from France and Germany by way of Louisiana and Mexico. Western swing, which is half country and half jazz, the first genre to use an electric guitar. Not to mention rhinestone cowboys in California and swoony Nashville strings and 1990s pop hits about a horse or a truck or a farm. It's been argued that those are all separate things that don't actually have much to do with each other and country is just a marketing construct made up to sell records. Well... Country was invented to sell records, but all those things are not just related, they're inseparable. Believe me, I've been trying for months. When you start trying to draw tidy borders, everything is connected to everything else. Culture is a mess. People listen to whatever speaks to them. Musicians steal from each other all the time. People might band together because they all feel similarly looked down on as hicks and excluded by urban high culture establishments. Although, the country music audience is not nearly as universally working class or rural as it's constructed to be. While I'm at it, another facet of this same argument is about authenticity. Country music is a real thing, but real country is always in danger. They don't play them like they used to. I don't think Hank done it this way. This prelapsarian time before outside influences and modern technology never existed. The earliest country music was already nostalgic for something before itself. Once, even the guitar and the tractor were new inventions that some people hated. And way too often, concerns about authenticity provide cover for racism, classism, misogyny, homophobia, or some other way of saying, this music isn't for you. For example, it's been pointed out that white singers from outside the U.S. often get less hassle about their authenticity than African-American or Latinx or Native performers who grew up playing country music. For the record, this music is for you! And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Unless you're one of those anything-but-country people, in which case, thanks for making it so far into this episode. So there might not have been many banjos in Bakersfield, but a distinct imprint of their presence remained. The part that they filled was played instead by the electric guitar. Leo Fender created, uh, well, the second version of the guitar that was to become the Telecaster was called the Broadcaster, and he made some refinements and called the Telecaster. You know, you wonder where a name like Telecaster came, came along, but it was the early 50s and television was just making its name and it sort of suggested a, a modern era and electronics and so you, you could kind of see where the name came from. But it's, it's a solid body piece of ash, just this big old huge heavy thing. You know, I talked to uh, Fred Carter, who was a session guitar player uh, in Nashville, about the Telecaster and 
one the thing he liked about it was, and Buck Owens said this too, is that you know it had this sound that would just cut right through the drums. It would you know it would take over a, a concert hall with with aluminum siding. But the the thing that uh, Fred Carter liked about it was if a fight broke out broke out in the in the bar, you know you could defend yourself with it because it was this huge <laughs> huge piece of wood. So it was it was uh, multifaceted. <laughs> The Moserate guitar is an interesting story as well uh, because they were they were manufactured here. The Ventures played Moserites, so you had this sort of beach surf music, which you wouldn't necessarily associate with Bakersfield, but uh, a band called the Lemon Pipers, they had a hit called um, My Green Tambourine. Their shtick was they kind of copied the Who. You know, the Who back in the early 60s would, at the end of the show, would wreck their instruments. They would smash their their, their equipment. And the Lemon Pipers, I would think working on a smaller budget, nevertheless, wrecked all their uh, Moserites. I don't know how many Moserites they went through. They had a shorter <laughs> career than the Who. Rock and roll and the Bakersfield sound. Both of them were kind of forming themselves at the same time. The prehistory in the 1930s, 1940s, really coalescing in the 1950s. So it isn't really that rock and roll was the influence and Bakersfield was the follower. The influence was really mutual, and they were also both drawing on many of the same earlier genres. While researching this episode, I came across a compilation called The First Rock and Roll Record. It's 82 tracks, but it could be at least one more because they're missing the Maddox Brothers and Rose. Pull up the shoes and board a spot when they do the boogie-boogie on a Friday night. Oh, let's go You can't see this, so let me paint you a word picture. Cowboy boots. A good ten inches of golden fringe and rising from that fringe a bright red skirt. Or maybe gaucho pants. Embroidered thigh-high with green foliage and white rose blossoms the size of your hand. A gleaming golden yellow satin blouse with huge green leaves and red roses climbing up the sleeves and placket. A red and white vest that's at least as much fringe as fabric with intricately curved hems and a white rose blossom on each breast. Red lipstick, a curly-headed pageboy haircut, and a big old hat. And that doesn't even start in on what her brothers were wearing. Tennessee Ernie Ford said that the Maddox's costumes made Liberace look like a plucked chicken. Where did this come from? Western costume historian Holly George Warren says it probably started in the 1880s with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Which makes sense. They might have been real cowboys, but they were definitely real showbiz. The rodeos kept it going for a few decades after that, and by the time the first movie cowboys came along in the 1920s, the public expected them to be just as fancy. The golden era of Western glam was outfitted by three Eastern European-American Jewish tailors. Nathan Turk, who was Polish or Armenian by birth, opened his first shop in Van Nuys, California in 1923, catering to riders in the Pasadena Rose Bowl Parade and movie cowboys like Tom Mix and Gene Autry. Nathan Turk is the one who dressed the Maddoxes. Bernard Lichtenstein moved from Poland to Philadelphia and opened a shop in the 1930s as Ben the Rodeo Tailor. That's his name on the tag inside millions of pairs of Wrangler jeans. 
and Nuda Kodlarienko, born in Ukraine, was reborn at Ellis Island as Nudie Cone. Take me in your Cadillac and we'll go honky-tonkin'. We'll park it by the roadside somewhere beneath the moon. Take me in your Cadillac and we'll go honky-tonkin'. We'll park it by the roadside and I'll make sweet love to you. Nudie started his American career in New York, making costumes for burlesque showgirls, and claimed to be the first to put a rhinestone on a shirt, after he moved to Hollywood, of course, for Lefty Frizzell. It's a hard claim to prove, but he was definitely the best self-promoter of the three, which is why we tend to call him nudie suits, regardless of who made him. The style that these tailors epitomized is instantly recognizable as country showbiz, but its sources are all over most especially embroidered Eastern European folk costume, Native American beadwork, and the traje de charro worn by Mexican rodeo cowboys and mariachis. As of 2020, the godfather of rhinestone cowboy couture is Manuel, born Manuel Cuevas in Michoacán. He was Nudie's head tailor and designer from the 1950s until he opened his own shop in 1975, and he bought out Nathan Turk when Turk retired, with a blank check that Turk never cashed. The rhinestone cowboy style is periodically sneered at as being tacky and ridiculous in a pretty blatantly classist way. If you set aside the not-universal idea that beauty and good taste require simplicity, it just looks exuberant and part of the show. Manuel says, I feel sorry for the audience when I see guys up on stage looking like they just pumped gas and grabbed a guitar. And for many years, wearing jeans or overalls or gingham at a country show, for performer or audience, would just not have been a thing. Country folks don't wear work clothes to go out, they dress up, just like everyone else. For some rhinestone eye candy, check the extended show notes at everyrecordeverrecorded.com or the cover of Porter Wagoner's The Carroll County Accident, Buck Owens' Carnegie Hall Concert, The Flying Burrito Brothers' Gilded Palace of Sin, Jack White at the 2013 Grammys, Lil Nas X at the VMAs. Gorgeous. Anyway, that first song was autobiographical. George's Playhouse was a legendarily rowdy honky-tonk just outside of Stockton, California, with a reputation for a fight a night. That's what you went for. In the 1930s and early 40s, the Maddox Brothers and Rose, like most bands, made most of their money playing live for dancing, at places like George's, which meant that they needed a lot of repertoire, not just proto-rock and roll, but hillbilly songs, cowboy songs, boogie-woogie, old-time, big band, western swing, blues, gospel, goofy novelty songs. So we also listen to this one, written by Oki migrant Woody Guthrie. A great Philadelphia lawyer Was in love with a Hollywood maid 
love and we will wander down where the lights are bright I'll win you a divorce from your husband and we can get married tonight while Bill was a gun-toting cowboy ten notches were carved in his gun and all the boys around Reno left Wild Bill's maiden alone. Yeah. Merle Haggard's guys were Lefty Frizzell and Bob Wills. Those were his two idols, and they, their influences show up in his music pretty thoroughly. Merle Haggard brought Bill Woods out to his house on the Kern River, I believe in the late 70s, and we recorded an album of Bob Wills' songs with Bob Wills. And it was sort of his final salute to his, to his hero. Bob Wills died shortly after that. But uh, yeah, Merle and, and uh, Western Swing were, were tight. So that oaky stuff that the people in the labor camps preferred to Burl Ives, a lot of that was Western Swing, which is mostly the hybrid that it sounds like. Western Swing. That's simplifying things a little. It also had elements of ragtime, polka, waltzes, Hawaiian music, mariachi, Dixieland. But you'd be about 80% right if you just called it swing jazz played on Western instruments. Instead of a trumpet or a clarinet playing lead, you'd have a fiddle. Instead of a whole section of woodwinds, steel guitar. Add an electric pickup to the acoustic guitar, throw in drums, maybe a piano. There you have it, a jazz band that sounds at home in a Texas dance hall. Sometimes they sang about country stuff, sometimes not. Sometimes the musicians thought of themselves as country musicians, sometimes they came from jazz. Guitarist Eldon Shamblin spent 15 years with the Texas Playboys, and later another 13 with Merle Haggard. I never did like country, he said. Still don't. The Western swing bands had rhythm like jazz, a swing two or swing four, instead of a straight two four. They had the jazz song form, a chorus through of the melody, maybe a vocal, and then solos, and they had solos like jazz. Check this Bob Will song from 1946 with Tommy Duncan singing and Bob on fiddle and hype. When it's sugar cane time, along around about June. Me, I'll be walking with sugar, meet the old sugar moon. Gonna drop her a line to expect me soon. Say I'm craving some sugar, meet the old sugar moon. I can see her right now. She'll get the calendar down, scratch a circle around the date we're all to bound. When it's sugar cane time. Along around about June, wedding bells will be chiming neath the old sugar moon. Kelso. Jody, 
when the sugar moon shines. So you hear Bob as the band leader calling out names of players to have them solo. At live shows, you just point to somebody with his fiddle bow. Usually a different player on different nights, improvising different solos on the same song. That is a straight up jazz thing. Compare this early Bakersfield track, Bud Hobbs from 1954. It's called Louisiana Swing, but you'll recognize some California names. Hey Joe, take my hand, let's go down to Louisiana and smell the sweet magnolias in the spring. Creole babies, nice and sweet, dancing to the bio beat when they do the Louisiana Swing. Out by you babies running wild, stealing kisses all the while, the bug bites everyone in spring. Glowworms glowing in the dark, couples necking in the park when they do the Louisiana Swing. All Billy Woods from Bakersfield, yeah. Western swing was invented in Texas and Oklahoma in the late 1920s and early 30s. Radio was just beginning to be a thing, and in the 20s, most of the stations were in the north. So southern and southwestern musicians suddenly had a non-stop source of new, basically northern sounds, which they learned to play alongside their usual repertoire on the mostly southern and western instruments that they had. Also, the new oil boom towns were full of cultural exchange among all the people who had moved there from nearby rural areas and faraway cities to try to strike it rich. Texas had a big live music circuit where a big band might make a living. At this point, nobody was selling a lot of records, so especially if a band had 10 or 15 players, they needed to do a lot of gigs and pull in a lot of audience if they were going to support themselves playing music. If you got the money, I've got the time, we'll go honky-tonkin' and we'll have a time. We'll make all the night spots, dance, drink, beer, and wine. If you got the money, honey, I've got the time. After Prohibition ended in 1933, Texas set alcohol laws at the county level. So there were lots of county line taverns, some of them huge where people from dry counties could drive just over the line to drink and dance. Radio stations began to pop up all over the region, including northern Mexico where you could have a real big transmitter. A band could get hired to do a regular sponsored show where they'd play live on the air and talk about a particular brand of bread or soap flakes, or hop on the local station to promote their gigs when they came through town on tour. A lot of bands were on tour most of the time. At first it was just back and forth across Texas and Oklahoma, but in the late 1930s and early 40s, Western Swing got enormously popular all over the West. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys played every night at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, sometimes to as many as 6,000 people a night. Almost 200 radio stations broadcast the regular live radio show by the Lightcrust Doughboys. The band was named after the flower company that sponsored their show, although it's hard not to see a double meaning to a bunch of white guys playing jazz. And by the early 40s, there was a full-on tour circuit entirely in Los Angeles. Venice, Compton, Culver City, Baldwin Park, the Riverside Rancho, which had a 10,000-square-foot dance floor, three bars, and a restaurant, and wasn't even the biggest club in town. 
The influence of Western Swing on Bakersfield is a little harder to hear in Buck than in Merle, but Buck was fond of saying that he was from the Bob Wills and Little Richard school of music. Bob Wills did whatever the hell he thought, Little Richard did whatever the hell he thought, and those were my big influences. Western Swing also made it totally normal to have electric guitar and a drum kit in a country band. But if you run short of money, I'll run short of time. Cause you with no more money, honey, I've no more time. That's Lefty Frizzell setting clear expectations around finances. But we were talking about Merle Haggard's Bob Wills tribute album made with Bob Wills and Bill Woods. Bob Wills, Bill Woods, Bob Wills, Bill Woods. Don't mix them up. Bill Woods was sort of the Pied Piper of the Bakersfield sound. He was born in Texas. His father was a Pentecostal minister. Uh, they moved to Arvin, and when the war broke out, Bill Woods moved up to Northern California and was one of those guys that performed for the uh, workers in the in the shipyards. He put together a, a band, had great success, and when the war was over, he came back to Bakersfield, but he persuaded a lot of the artists he had met, a lot of the musicians he'd met up north to come to Bakersfield. And so you had this first wave of musicians who didn't know you know, Bakersfield from, from Fresno who, who moved here. Every time he would make contact with people, he would say, hey, you need to come to Bakersfield. You need to come to Bakersfield. Cousin Herb Henson was one of those guys. Cousin Herb had come out from... Oh, gosh, I think it was Missouri, and originally settled in Fresno. He, he met up with Bill Woods. Bill convinced him to come here, and then uh, Cousin Herb became sort of a Pied Piper himself. Uh, another one was Ferlin Husky, who was the, he had a band called the Termites, and they were the house band at the uh, Rainbow Garden. Ferlin Husky also had a lot of uh, Pied Piper in him. So you had these guys who were actively recruiting people to come to Bakersfield, and that was a huge part of Bakersfield uh, kind of becoming this this uh, mecca. Ferlin Husky recorded what was sort of acknowledged as the first hit uh, out of the Bakersfield sound era. He did a duet with Jeannie Shepard called A Dear John Letter. I was overseas in battle when the postman come to me and he handed me a letter. I was as happy as I could be for the fighting was all over and the battle had been won. Then I opened up the letter and it started Dear John Dear John Isn't that a great song? What a tragedy though. I mean, here's this poor schmuck in a foxhole somewhere. I don't know, he's supposed to be in Germany or Korea. It came out during the Korean War, so maybe he's supposed to be in Korea. His girlfriend has, has left him and and not only is she breaking up via letter, but she wants him to send back the photo. I mean, it's like she only has one photo. She needs her photo back, and and then of course the uh, 
the coup de grace is that she's marrying his brother. Oh no! All, all this, all this in this in this tragic letter. This was a crossover, another crossover song. This uh, made it onto the pop charts as well as right to the top of the country music charts. Jeannie Shepard, I mean, this just rocketed her to fame. I mean, she's got a beautiful voice. She moved to uh, Nashville and, and joined the Grand Ole Opry and had a long, long career. She married Hank Shaw Hawkins, who uh, was actually killed in the crash that killed Patsy Cline. Ferlin Husky also moved to Nashville. And so he comes from this sort of rockabilly tradition here in Bakersfield. He goes to Nashville and records what some would consider to be the first Nashville sound song. Since you've gone, the moon, the sun, the stars in the sky know the reason why I cry. Love divine once was mine. Now you've gone Since you've gone My heart, my lips My tear-dimmed eyes A lonely soul within me cries I acted smart Broke your heart now you've gone. That is hilarious. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine those backing vocals behind like Merle Haggard or Buck Owens. And those, and those backing vocals, I'm not sure if, if that's the Jordanaires or who that is. I don't think it's the Jordanaires, but there were these, you know, these little groups of just fantastic harmony singers who would go from studio to studio, from recording artist to recording artist. You know, one of the things that was sort of a hallmark in Nashville was, you had the same bands, and the only interchangeable part would be the star, the name you know on the record. But it was the same bands. Ferland Husky was a hilarious guy. He uh, he was on TV a lot in the late fifties and early sixties, and throughout the sixties, he had a persona, uh, an alter ego by the name of Simon Crum, who was a com- basically a comedian. He was a goofy guy. He put, had had some funny teeth he put in and. You know, Ferlin was a, a multi-talented guy. I mean, a, sort of a debonair-looking guy. And he could do it all. But, I mean, what a, what a range to do that uh, Dear John letter where he sounds like this poor, pathetic hillbilly, and then you hear him on Gone, and he has this, you know, this wonderful, resonant, you know, Perry Como kind of voice. Yeah, yeah, from the honky-tonk to the dinner dance. Yeah. You know, uh, a Dear John letter has a pretty good story behind it. So a Dear John letter was written by a guy named Hillbilly Barton who was kind of a scammer. He was this sort of this handsome guy who would, you know, you know, steal your wife if he could get away with it. Uh, he was always looking for a, a way to make a buck. Uh, but he was a songwriter, a singer and a songwriter, and he wrote a Dear John letter and uh, recorded it, and it didn't go anywhere. Nothing happened. Well, Fuzzy Owen and Louis Talley, who were cousins, uh, lived in Bakersfield. They had started Talley Records. And they were musicians and trying to make it in the in, in the business themselves. They heard the song. They wanted to buy the song. But they didn't have any money. So Lewis offered up his 1947 Kaiser automobile in exchange for ownership of the song. And Hillbilly, Hillbilly Barton uh, said, yeah, I'll sell you this old song that's not worth anything for your car. So um, Fuzzy Owen and Bonnie Owens 
recorded the song and it didn't really go anywhere. And then Bill Woods and a female singer recorded the song and it didn't really go anywhere. And then Ferlin Husky and Jeannie Shepard, another Bakersfield duo, recorded the song and it went straight to the top. And so now Bill Hillbilly Barton is mad. He's like, wait a minute, I just got this lousy old car and you've got a, a big hit on your hands. So I think there were some legalities that took place, some mm. little uh, warring in the court. And if you look at the song now, it's now credited to Hillbilly Barton, Fuzzy Owen, and Lewis Talley. Fuzzy Owen and Lewis Talley were cousins from Arkansas. Uh, they made their way to, to Bakersfield, and they were intent on making it in the, uh, in the music world. And they played early on at the Blackboard Cafe before it was anything famous. They started a record label called Talley Records, and uh, they went about trying to sign some acts, uh, and they had some moderate success. Then this kid gets out of prison, out of San Quentin prison in 1960, I believe it was. They heard him singing, had this great baritone voice. I think he played the bass back then. Heard him at uh, the Lucky Spot, and they uh, they signed him, signed him to a contract. And they, they worked it. They recorded some songs. They released some songs uh, with his name on them, and there was some moderate success. And then finally, Lewis, who played in Merle's band back then, went to Ken Nelson of Capitol Records and said, I got a guy for you. Sing me song, sadness, and sing as blue as I If a tear should appear, it's because she's not here. Sing a sad song and sing it for me. She's unhappy with me. She told me so. I'm unhappy without her And I still love her so Oh, sing me the song Of sadness Pretend it's the end Of the world Sing it sweet and sing it low And then I'll have to go Sing a sad song and sing it for me That's pretty suave for a tough guy. This was very suave, yeah. The story of this song. So when Stewart was a pretty well-known performer, Identified closely with the Bakersfield sound, even though he did not live in Bakersfield. He was based out of Los Angeles, but he spent a lot of time in Bakersfield. He also performed a lot in Las Vegas, and he was the headline act at the Cal Neva Club back in the early, early 60s. And he hired Merle Haggard as his bass player. And Sing a Sad Song was one of Wynn Stewart's compositions and something he performed regularly in his act. And one day, uh, Merle went to uh, Wynn and said, Hey, Wynn, if you had it in your power to help me make it as a, as a solo performer, as a star, would you do it? And Wynn said, well, 
of course, Merle. And he said, let me record, sing a sad song. And he said, yeah, you got it. Go ahead and do it. Merle did it, made a hit out of it. And Wynn Stewart said, why'd you have to go and do a better job on that song than I did? Oh. But uh, Merle uh, enjoyed Las Vegas. He enjoyed it too much. Lost a lot of money there. And in fact, there's a story about him. I don't know if it was part of the same era or not, but he, uh, in a coffee shop in Las Vegas, left a bag of, with $40,000 in it uh, at the table and walked away. Ooh. But at this time, he, he did have a little bit of a gambling problem, and he realized, I got to get out of this place or some bad things are going to happen. So he left, left Las Vegas, which was just as well because he, uh, he had business to take care of here in Los Angeles and Bakersfield. Yeah. Let's talk about lyrics. I noticed that there, there's, there's some themes that we're, that we're running across. There's a lot of love. A lot of it's sad. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we've played very many drinking songs, but that is that is certainly... I'm basically just running through everything from that, that David Allen Coe song. I was drunk when yeah. my mom got out of prison and I went to pick her up in the rain. <laughs> right. So, exactly. you know, we got like moms drinking, love, trucks, I guess, but I don't really see very many trucks. Trucks come along a little later. Oh, yeah? But yeah, there's definitely a truck uh, era. But yeah, drinking and uh, love lost, those are the two... Uh, Two of the big ones. I mean, one of the songs that epitomizes that is Swingin' Doors, which was Merle Haggard's, uh, probably his second big hit. This old smoke-filled bar is something I'm not used to But I gave up my home to see you satisfied And I just called to let you know where I'll be living it's not much, but I feel welcome here inside. And I've got swinging doors, jukebox, and a bar stool. And my new home has a flashing neon sign. Stop by and see me anytime you want to. Cause I'm always here at home till closing time. When you think of Merle Haggard, 1966, I mean, that's, that's it right there. It's got all the ingredients, the plinkety-plink piano in the background and kind of a chicken-pick uh, guitar style. I think that was James Burton who played guitar for Elvis Presley and Ricky Nelson and some other some other folks. And uh, Roy Nichols, who was a uh, guitar player for Merle for many years, I think they're all on that track right there. Um, Did he record that in Nashville? I think he recorded that at Capitol Records. Okay. Right, right, okay. right over the hill here. Is that kind of how it happened? Like, did you get to bring all your guys into the studio usually, or or did you get to bring your list of songs and yourself, and then they kind of decided who was going to back you up? Well, that's another one of the big differences between the Bakersfield sound and the Nashville sound. In Nashville, you had the star. And then the all-star team of musicians who would go from studio to studio and only the, the, the star would change. In Bakersfield and in, at Capitol Records in Los Angeles, Ken Nelson would allow the musicians, by and large, to bring their own bands. The bands that they toured with, that they played with every day, were the bands in the studio. Now, they would bring in some, some big hitters like James Burton as well. Glenn Campbell also played in a lot of uh, studio country music songs in L.A. And, of course, he was also in the Wrecking Crew that uh, performed the all-star teams for a lot of rock songs, a lot of rock and roll. 
But Bakersfield bands were, by and large, allowed to bring their own bands into the studio. Yeah. You know, we've talked about the, the theme of, uh, you know, drinking and broken hearts. Merle followed Swinging Doors Up with The Bottle Let Me Down. I mean, that was his very next hit. So, I mean, he, he latched right. onto a theme and kept going with it. <laughs> he ran with that thing. You know, write what you know. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Um, let's talk about Bonnie Owens. Bonnie Owens is, uh, was kind of the glue. She's the glue to the Bakersfield Sound story, the, the, the true actual story, but also the, the story that so many screenwriters have imagined. She was married to Buck Owens in the early, early 50s. They had a couple kids together. They were both living in Arizona at the time. Didn't work out. She moved to Bakersfield because she had an aunt and uncle living here, and Buck followed her a few uh, weeks later. You know, they shared custody of the boys. She kind of took up with Fuzzy Owen. Fuzzy Owen was her her boyfriend for many years. No relation to Buck. No relation to Buck. This is Uh, not a Dear John Letter story. uh, uh, No, it's not. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Fuzzy has no S on the end of of Owen. And uh, then Merle gets out of prison, and here's this, you know, kind of ruggedly handsome rascal. (laughs) Uh, And Bonnie, who was older, you know, was attracted to him and he to her she went up to alaska to to work in a club for a a period of time and he went to alaska chased her up there proposed to her and they were married for a few years and she was sort of his muse she said later that it was really more of a kind of a big sister relationship than any anything else you know they had they were a good songwriting team and he, he put her name on a few song credits and she was a recording artist as well she was a recording artist as well yeah, she was never a huge artist, and you wonder if she might have been a bigger artist if she had wanted to be a bigger artist. She was, I think, content to be the girl singer, unquote. She could have been a bigger star than she was, and I think people you know, now are just kind of starting to appreciate that a little bit more. So she was a cocktail waitress at the Clover Club, and she would uh, walk around serving drinks and would think about songwriting, and she would get out her pen and write down song lyrics on, her, on a cocktail napkin. And sometimes it would end up in the trash, but sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes it would turn into a song. And at some point during the night at the Clover Club, the, 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 the customer would say, Bonnie, get up there to sing a song. So she would go up and she would sing a song or two with the, with the band. I know what's going through your mind. You plan to leave my love behind. You're wondering how to break the news to me. I hate to see you worry so I love you, but I'll let you go First, you'll have to help me set you free didn't write that one on a cocktail napkin or anywhere else. That's by Liz Anderson, who also lived in Bakersfield in the early 60s, and whose songs have been sung by just about everybody. Waylon Jennings, Kitty Wells, Charlie Pride, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, Porter Wagoner, George Jones, Conway Twitty. Early in his career, Merle Haggard got talked into going around to her house to hear some songs she'd written. 
I was all set to be bored to death, he said, and apparently she wasn't too excited to meet him either. She was a successful songwriter, and he was a regional player at best. But then, she got out a bunch of songs and went over to an old pump organ, and, as he told his biographer, there they were. My God, one hit after another. Liz's song, My Friends Are Gonna Be Strangers, became Merle's first top ten hit, and named his band at the same time. We also played a Merle song that he and Bonnie wrote together, and she's singing harmony on this recording. As with Liz and Merle, Bonnie was the better known at the beginning of their relationship. Not what you'd call famous, but well-loved. And Merle always gave her credit for starting his career. They liked her so much that they tried me. Today I started loving you again I'm right back where I've really always been I got over you just long enough to let my heartache mend Then today I started loving you again What a fool I was to think I could get by So Merle and Bonnie were in a hotel room they were out on the road and uh, they started working on the lyrics to this song. And Merle would, would write something, and Bonnie would say, yeah, but do this, do that, shorten this, take this part out. And they were making some progress, and Merle was, you know, had his guitar. And then after a while, he said, you know, Bonnie, would you do me a favor? Would you run out and get me a hamburger real quick? I'm getting hungry. She said, sure. So she, she goes out, she gets the hamburger, she comes back, and Merle has finished the song. And he plays it for her, and she just breaks down in tears. And it became a you know a pretty good a pretty good hit. Yeah. Uh, but she was a big part of the of that process. Yeah. So at this point, I started thinking of all the people involved in this or any other music scene: the singers, the musicians, the songwriters, the people who set up at the clubs and served drinks and broke up fights, the people at the recording studios and the record labels, the TV shows, the radio shows, the music teachers, the music stores, the people making the guitars. It must have been a chunk of the Bakersfield economy at this point, no? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think of Union Avenue, which at the time was Highway 99. It was a lively place with all kinds of clubs and restaurants. And there was, um, you know, kind of the, the, the Perry Como, Dean Martin, the stuff you would hear in Las Vegas. There was a lot of that on, on Union Avenue. You go far enough south, all the country music clubs are out there, or far enough north. You get out of town, and that's where the country music clubs are. You go a little bit to the west – that's where the, the the black part of town is. You had people like Ike Turner. A, a lot of really well-known artists would come here, uh, black artists. So yeah, there were a lot of things going on. There was a, a, a big music culture here, a big music economy. And it wasn't just country music. I think country music was a pretty substantial part of it. But there was a lot of stuff going on. It was yeah. a great nightlife. Uh, TV was not that much to speak of. There was not... 600 channels and content to go for days and days. So you would go out and you would go dancing. And, you know, I kind of hate to say it, but this was sort of the pre-Mothers Against Drunk Driving era. I mean, people would go out and they would drink and drive and go from club to club. And um, it made for a lively uh, lively nightlife. Just watch where you're driving. 
Um, that's interesting that you mentioned that there was sort of a separate music scene. I mean, it was the 50s and the 60s, but there was sort of a separate music scene on the black side of town. How? What were the demographics of the country scene? Was it pretty white? I think the country scene was very, very white. And it still is a pretty white, uh, pretty white scene. Let's throw in an asterisk here. There are people of color in country music right now, and there always have been. So where did this white scene come from? Some of it is erasure, simply not recording or talking about the people who were really there. Some of it is true. The intentional right-wingification of country music has surely driven some people of color away who would otherwise participate. And some of it is straight-up gerrymandering. In the 1920s, when record companies started recording black artists, not just white artists in blackface as previously, the industry intentionally drew a line down the center of working-class Southern music based entirely on the race of the performer, and they called the white side of it hillbilly records and the black side race records, a term which also covered any other type of music plus sermons, lectures, comedy, as long as the artists were black. You may notice that this doesn't leave much space for artists who are not white or black. If they got recorded, those artists tended to be in the foreign section of the catalog. The big exception is Hawaiian music, which became the best-selling genre in America in 1916, and for the next several decades remained so popular that it just became pop, and its Hawaiian-ness was sort of disappeared. I'm going to play you a record now and you tell me whether the artist is known for jazz or country. Okay, so at this point, you're probably like, I guess it's jazz, but what about option C, blues? But wait a minute. Wait, what? Yeah, okay, fine. So it's a trick question. The singer is Jimmy Rogers, a white musician nicknamed the father of country music. And the trumpeter is black jazz legend Louis Armstrong. The pianist is Louis's wife, Lil Armstrong, and nobody actually knows how the session came about. It's the only record they made together. But you can hear in the way that they play together, and in plenty of the other records that each of them made on their own, that they were really from the same sort of music world. Okay, so a record by someone who was a star at the Grand Ole Opry for 14 years must be country, right? This is another trick question. This is the black harmonica player D. Ford Bailey, 
and his recording of John Henry was put out by Victor in 1932 and in 1933 with two different flip sides, sold as a blues record when backed by another black harmonica player and an old time record with a flip side by a white one. While, while young men like to have a good time. In the 1940s, hillbilly started to sound like an insulting way to describe poor white people, and the record biz found a new term, country music. For a similar reason, race records began to be differentiated into various actual genres, including rhythm and blues. A decade later, the industry and the culture were still working pretty hard to keep them separated. This song, Wild Wild Young Men, was a 1953 hit for the queen of R&B, Ruth Brown, and two years later for Rose Maddox. Wild, wild young men like to have a good time. Wild, wild young men like to have a good time. Here's Hank Penny. Now just because you're pretty and you think you're mighty wise, you tell me that you love me, then you roll those big blue eyes. And here's Winoni Harris. You tell me that you love me, then you roll those big brown eyes. From 1962, this is Patsy Cline singing Hank Williams. Will make you and this is the artist who made possibly the first million-selling country LP, Ray Charles. Will make you there is a lot going on here. What was at first a completely made-up distinction did eventually gain some musical reality. By, say, the 80s, it's hard to imagine Janet Jackson on the country charts or Charlie Daniels doing much with contemporary R&B. And it's true that in the general way of music, the difference between one genre and another sometimes does come down to, say, the instrumentation. And also, way too often, black artists are confined within a spectrum of genres on the basis of race. Critics, listeners, algorithms assign their work to R&B, blues, jazz, hip-hop, regardless of what it sounds like. Or they're even completely prevented from working outside genres coded as black. So if country music is white, one of the many reasons is that the music industry made a rule that said it only counted as country music if it was white. As evidence that we haven't really gotten over it, consider the current biggest Texan in music, Beyonce. Her song, Daddy Lessons, Whiskey, Rifles, Cheatin' Hearts, The Bible, Taking Care of Mama, Listening to Daddy. Country enough for a 2016 live performance at the Country Music Awards, but resulted in an avalanche of internet hatred and was not considered for a country Grammy. Also, Lil Nas X's Old Town Road famously kicked off the country charts in 2019 until he came back with a white guy. So I hope you'll take the whiteness of the Bakersfield scene with the necessary grain of salt. Also, an asterisk to the asterisk, we're in the middle of a resurgence of scholarship about country music, which is correcting the record in a lot of ways. I got to do a bunch of reading for this episode, and you can check out a bibliography in the show notes at everyrecorderrecorded.com. Speaking of scholarship, there's finally a proper box set treatment of Bakersfield. Yeah, Scott Bomar's uh, box set is, uh, you know, it's the document, in addition to being 
highly entertaining and really beautiful and attractive. It's it's a it's an archive. I mean, it's like the Library of Congress for for the Bakersfield Sound. Uh, so that's a good place to start. Actually, I should plug my own book. That's the place to start. And conveniently also called the Bakersfield Sound. Conveniently, yeah. The Bakersfield Sound, How a Generation of Displaced Okies Revolutionized American Music. It came out in uh, 2015. Second edition came out in 2017 with Marty Stewart ri- writing a, uh, a preface. So that's where you should start. But uh, Scott's box set is just an amazing accomplishment. Let's talk about where the music went um what happened what happened the bakersfield sound coalesced came together fizzled in bakersfield what happened well you know uh i mentioned mothers against drunk driving uh, bakersfield was, was a was a club scene it was a honky-tonk scene nashville was and continues to be a recording industry scene it's all about getting a contract and getting on a record in in nashville here you could make a living playing in the clubs and it was just icing on the cake if you got a record contract on top of it so when the when the clubs kind of started fading because of laws that came along, that that just changed things. People just aged out. I mean, when uh, some of them left and went to Nashville, like uh, Ferlin Husky and uh, Jeannie Shepard, Merle Haggard moved to Northern California, but he continued to perform right up until, you know, he died. Buck Owens' situation was that. From about 1959 to about 1973, he was one hit after another. In 1973, Don Rich, his high harmony collaborator and guitar player, was killed in a motorcycle accident. This was uh, Buck's right-hand man, his little brother, and it just really kind of ruined him. Dwight Yoakam came along in 1986 and kind of pulled Buck out of it. But for that decade and a half, Buck was really kind of shut down because he lost his you know, his muse, in a way, Don Rich was his muse. Dwight Yoakam uh, is kind of carrying the flag right now for the Bakersfield Sound. He has a Bakersfield Sound show on uh, Sirius XM Radio, and so he's kind of keeping it going. In the early 80s, Dwight Yoakam came to Bakersfield to play at the Kern County Fair, and he popped in unannounced at KUZZ Radio, which Buck Owens ran for many years. His family still runs it. He goes up to the receptionist and said, hey, I'm Dwight Yoakam. I'd like to talk to Buck. So the receptionist goes in and says, uh, Buck, uh, there's a young man here who says he's Dwight Yoakam. And Buck says, well, well, what is it? That was my Buck Owens impersonation. <laughs> and she said, it looks like him. They talked. Buck actually went out to the fair that night and played with him. And then sometime later, the Country Music uh, Association, they wanted Buck Owens to perform with Merle Haggard. Uh, on the live CBS telecast. Merle couldn't make it for some reason at the last minute. He kind of ha- had to back out. So uh, they asked Buck, you know, what, any ideas? And he said, you know what? Let me call Dwight Yoakam. So he called Dwight Yoakam. Dwight agreed to do it. Uh, they were trying to figure out what to sing together. They went to a 1972 album that Buck recorded and they found a track that had not been released as a single. And it was uh, The Streets of Bakersfield. Looking for something I couldn't find anywhere else But I don't want to be nobody Just want a chance to be myself I've done a thousand miles of thumbing 
Yes, I've worn blisters on my heels Trying to find me something better On the streets of Bakersfield Nothing wrong with that. They brought in Flaco Jimenez to play accordion. They livened it up a little bit, and they performed it live on CBS, and it was a sensation. So people are going to record stores and calling DJs and saying, where can I buy this song? And they said, you can't buy it. it, doesn't, it it's never been recorded. It, it's only been you know, on the TV show. The record company said, get in the studio now. So they went in, they recorded it, they got it out pretty, as quickly as they could. And it, be, it was uh, Buck's comeback record. And it, you know, it brought him back to life. And Dwight Yoakam was uh, kind of his Don Rich. As nice as that original version was, I mean, this, you know, Pete Anderson on the lead guitar, that, that first lick that opens the song, and of course, Flaco Jimenez with the accordion all the way through, and, you know, Dwight Yoakam's, you know, great singer, and they, and they work off each other so beautifully. That's real Tex-Mex. Yeah, it was genius to, to take that approach with that song. You mentioned earlier something about, um, was it Buck that you were talking about who had like a little bit of Tejano influence in his instrumentation or was that Bob Wells? I was talking about Buck. Okay. I mean, he told me that he he did. Uh, growing up in Texas and Arizona, he would hear the guys in the fields. That was the same with Bill Woods. Bill Woods, uh, you know, he picked up a lot of, I don't know if it was Tejano, but it was, you know, Mexican field worker music. And uh, it, it crept into the music uh, for both those guys and especially for Buck. Yeah. So the southwestern United States is north of Mexico. And before it was north of Mexico, it was Mexico. The border moved in 1848, but it remains permeable and the relationship remains close. You can hear it on Streets of Bakersfield. It's distinctly a country song in the Buck solo version. And without changing really anything else about it, the 1980s version adds Flaco Jimenez accordion, turns up the drums, and you have what Dwight called a little Norteño polka. Except for that the lyrics are in English, which is generally a big deal in the music biz. Marketing campaigns, radio programmers, algorithms tend to run on the assumption that people listen to music in English or in Spanish, but not both. That's beginning to change in the pop realm. Despacito may have gotten some people's attention, but you can generally count on country to hold the line. All the same, there are lots of musical elements common to some kinds of country music and some genres of Mexican music. Consider the corrido, a long story song, sometimes about a real person, say a revolutionary hero or a tragic martyr or an outlaw. Voy a cantar el corrido del salteador de camino. 
At the beginning of the song, the singer introduces themselves and their subject. I'll tell you the story of Billy the Kid, and I'll tell other things that this young outlaw did. The bulk of the song tells the story of their protagonist's larger-than-life exploits. Oftentimes, despite their heroics, they meet with a tragic end. Had Gareth been fired and his thumbbuster cracked, and Billy fell dead, he was blowed through the back. Although the tempo is frequently sprightly, even if the story is sad. You get the idea. Woody Guthrie grew up in Texas and spent a lot of his youth skipping school and learning every song he could from anyone who would teach him. Seems unlikely that he spontaneously reinvented the corrido form all by himself. And that two-step rhythm. German immigrants brought the umpa to Texas in the 1830s and 40s, and Linda Ronstadt likes to say that Mexicans took German culture and made it sexy. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I'm not going to arbitrate on the sexiness of Ernest Tubb, but I do want to point out that a lot of two-step dancing is basically just wrapping yourself around your partner and wiggling your hips. I lost your love. Baby, thanks a lot. There's also the grito, like this. That's Jose Alfredo Jimenez. This is the Maddox Grito. I'm just a semi-second daddy. I'm just a tired old hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Bob Wills Grito. The Maddoxes and Bob Wills were only a few of the important Bakersfield musicians who did migrant farm work before making it in the music biz. Buck Owens described it as his musical education. Quote, Blacks, Mexicans, and white folks stretched out over maybe 50 yards or more, and they'd all be singing. I don't remember hearing too many happy songs out in the fields. They'd sing songs that had lines like, My good woman's gone and left me and she ain't coming back. Here were these three very different groups of people, and everybody was singing songs about the same thing. It was almost like a competition to see which group could come up with the saddest song. A few decades earlier, Jimmy Rogers got a lot of his musical education on the job as well. He worked as a waterboy for the railroad, where he heard the singing of the black construction crews. The record business, and the U.S. in general, were very much segregated, but the further down you got on the social ladder, the more flexible that might be. Poor folks of many different backgrounds often found themselves working or even living side by side. That song, back to the streets of Bakersfield now. The first line of the chorus is like so punk rock. You don't know me, but you don't like me. Totally. It is so snotty. It's so wonderful. Yeah. Um, would you tell the story of the writing of this song? Yeah. There's a songwriter by the name of Homer Joy, which is one of the great all-time names. Right up there with Furlan Husky. Maybe. Right up there with Furlan Husky. And if I can do an aside, even before I start the story, it took me many years to meet Homer Joy. And I had this vision 
in my head of kind of a punk rock guy. I really did. And of course, he's just a Oklahoma good old boy is what it turned out to be. But he was a songwriter and he wanted to uh, record his music. Buck Owens had a recording studio up in Oildale. It was an old converted movie theater. And um, Homer was trying to get Buck to record some of his songs. And Buck finally agreed, as, as Homer tells it, finally agreed to give him some studio time, which was, you know, pretty valuable stuff. And so he shows up at the appointed time and, and Buck says, I, well, I can't do that right now. We're getting ready to hop in the RV and go out and on tour. And Homer was mad. So he's staying at a, at a, at a motel somewhere down in Oildale. So he gets out there and walks, trudges, you know, 30 blocks to the motel and by the time he got there, he probably did have some blisters on his heel. On his heel, he was, and, but he was mad, and he sat down and he wrote that song. You, you're not even gonna, giving me a chance. You don't know me, but you don't like me without even giving me a chance. He realized he had a song. He brought it back. I don't know if it was the next day or soon after. And uh, Bob Morris, uh, one of uh, Buck's right right hand men, was uh, up front, and Homer handed him the song. And Bob looks at it and goes, "Hang on a second. And he goes, walked back, said, "Buck, you got to look at this right now." And uh, Buck said, come on in, let's record this thing. And, you know, it, it got uh, Homer some money. But, I mean, it was it was not a hit, you know, on, on the album. It was just an album track. In 1986, though, when it became a big hit, that was really kind of fulfillment for a long career of uh, trying on the part of <laughs> A lot Homer. of trudging. Yeah, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of blisters. So you mentioned a, a, a couple times, you know, that you asked so-and-so about this or he told you about that. Would you talk about the process of writing your book? You got to talk to all these guys. This is like the era of giants is past. Like most of the people that you mentioned in the book are gone now, but you got to talk to them. Yeah. You know, this is where I have to admit that I'm really kind of an imposter. You know, I grew up uh, in Northern California listening to rock music and, uh, you know, kind of came to Bakersfield by accident because it was the first, it was the first good job that got me out of LA, which is what I was trying to do at the time. And uh, I had every job in the place at the Californian from sports writer to business writer. I had a time as an entertainment writer as well. And I had heard of the Bakersfield Sound. I was familiar with Buck and Merle, and especially with Buck Owens. And I went to the uh, the editor of the feature section and said, have we ever written about the Bakersfield Sound? There was another entertainment writer standing there. And he said, of course we have. And I didn't believe him. So I went up to the attic where our archive was and looked through it, and I didn't see much at all that we had written about the Bakersfield Sound, only you know passing references. So I went back and I said, do you mind if I give it a shot? And the editor said, go for it. So I went crazy, as is my want. I found these guys. I uh, Some of them I talked to one-on-one. Uh, some I talked to on the phone. I called Buck Owens' office. That was the first call I made and talked to the secretary. And she said, yeah, I'll give him the message. And nothing happened. So the first... So these stories were published four consecutive Sundays in the summer of 1997. After the first round, after the first Sunday publication, the phone rings and it's Buck Owens. He says, okay, you're legit. Come on down. And, <laughs> and from that point on, you know, I always had a pretty good relationship with Buck. We kind of became sort of friends. You know, he was the star and I was not. But the, it kind of built, built upon itself. After these first uh, series of stories came out, uh, this was right when the internet was kind of getting started, really. And I got emails from people in Argentina and Finland. I had no idea the Bakersfield Sound had fans literally all over the world. I kind of became this this accidental expert just by immersing myself in it so so thoroughly. But I talked to Tommy Collins by phone. 
uh, what a story he had. Uh, I talked to him on the phone only about a year before he died. I talked to Ferland Husky just a couple of years before he died. I was able to talk to most all of the guy, uh, important people before they passed away. Being in the right place, doing the right thing yeah, at the right yeah. time. You know, if you'd had that idea five years later, it would have been a much different book. Absolutely, absolutely. So so the, the 1997 stuff that I wrote opened some other doors. I wrote for the Journal of Country Music. I wrote for uh, Time Life Music. I, I continued to follow the story along with every other thing that I covered as a journalist. Then about mm, 2013, 2014, uh, Logan Mullen, who had been my editor I talked about earlier, who had said, yeah, go for it. By this time, he was chief operating officer of the newspaper. And he said, you know what? We really need to do this book. We had been talking off and on about the book for a long time. And I realized by this time, I had about a half a book already written. So I dove into it and wrote the other half of the book. We got it self-published. And then about a year later, Heyday Books in Berkeley called me and said they would like to publish the book. So we had a second edition. And it's been uh, it's been pretty successful. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you said Tommy Collins had a great story. Yeah, there is uh, some debate actually about what the first Bakersfield Sound hit was. People normally credit uh, a Dear John Letter, but uh, this song by Tommy Collins, "You Better Not Do That," came out just about the same time. I'm just a plain old country kid, and I like to do what's right. But just like any other boy, I like to hold them tight Sometimes I got resistance, but no matter how I try When a cute little gal just looks at me with a gleam in her eye And I say, you better not do that And she say, why? And I say, cause you just better not do that When I Tommy moved out here under some interesting circumstances His girlfriend was Wanda Jackson Wanda Jackson. She's often mentioned in Tommy Collins' biographies, but he doesn't often figure in hers. I've even seen a theory that his whole story is about a different Wanda entirely. But Wanda Jackson and her family did live in Bakersfield for a few years in between stints in Oklahoma. She became known as the Queen of Rockabilly, and her music really makes it clear where that genre came from. Her guitar style and her singing voice are perfectly suited to both rock and roll and country, even if she doesn't always straddle the line quite so obviously as in this song. When she was a child in California, she saw Bob Wills perform, and Tux Williams, and the Maddox Brothers in Rose, and she says that their sound and their onstage glamour were what made her take up music. She had her own radio show in Oklahoma City by the time she was in high school, which led to a spot in Hank Thompson's Western Swing Band. After graduation, she toured with Elvis, who encouraged her to play more rock and roll. She was a cast member on a televised country music variety show called Ozark Jubilee. She recorded some now classic rockabilly records with Ken Nelson in L.A. The session musicians included Buck Owens. And that was just the 1950s. Wanda Jackson performed, recorded, and appeared in the charts for six more decades, until her retirement in 2019. It's interesting to think of her as a sort of flip side to the Bakersfield sound, the Oki that tried California and then made her fortune back home. She was a 14-year-old singer. He was 21 years old. 
Unfortunately, Wanda's parents were accompanying them, and they came out to visit some relatives in Bakersfield, and they made the acquaintance of Ferlin Husky at the Rainbow Garden. Ferlin said, uh, you know, what do you, what do you do, young man? He said, well, I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a, um, a country music singer. And he said, well, you, well, are you or aren't you? And uh, Tommy said, well, I am. I am. Tommy Collins actually ended up living with Ferlin Husky and his wife and performing on a regular basis at the, at the Rainbow Garden. Wanda Jackson and her, and her family went back to Oklahoma City. But Tommy Collins stayed here, got a contract with Capitol Records. He specialized in sort of lighthearted music. Uh, Buck Owens was his lead guitar player for all of his uh, recordings. And in fact, Tommy was very possessive of Buck. He didn't want him playing on anybody else's records, and Buck was not having that. Tommy drank quite a bit, but he also had this, you know, Pentecostal religion in him. And at one point after, you know, he'd made some, made a little money singing, he had to get away from the alcohol and the alcohol was in the bars where he played. So he gave up drinking and decided to become a minister. So he actually became an ordained minister and he did that for a few years, but the lure of uh, music called him back. So he went back and, and uh, started playing again in the bars and the, the bad habits returned as well. And then I think he went back to the ministry again at some point. He had heaven and hell tugging at him on, from both sides. He actually married, conducted the services when uh, Merle Haggard married his uh, the last of his five wives, Teresa. But I believe he died in about 2000. And I was fortunate to talk to him and get to know him a little bit before he passed away. It seems like a lot of these guys lived surprisingly long lives, considering how dissolute some of them were. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I, Merle Haggard, it's amazing he lasted as long as he, right? as long as he did. <laughs> Who have we missed? Who's, who's a good story that you just can't leave out? Probably Billy Mize. The kind of life you're living since you left me I'm sure is not the life you thought you chose That honky-tonky world is not so flashy Bright lights and booze is all it really Not long ago you held our baby's bottle But the one you're holding now's a different kind And you never know whose lips you soon be kissing For it all depends on who will buy the wine Sets them up and tips the waitress. Billy Mize was another one of those Dust Bowl guys, and he performed early on with Bill Woods in the late 40s. They were barely shaving, but they were performing for, for the Oki migrants, and they got into uh, radio early on. And then when the TV got started in the early 50s, Billy Mize was one of those guys that was uh, regular on uh, Cousin Herb. He was also uh, the host of his own show for a while. And uh, in the late 50s, he was performing a lot on Los Angeles uh, TV. He'd perform here in Bakersfield, then he'd hop in his Cadillac, drive over to L.A., perform in, in one of those uh, live TV shows, back and forth, back and forth for, for many years. He never quite 
made it. I mean, he, uh, Dean Martin recorded one of his songs. In fact, I think Dean Martin recorded Who Will Buy the Wine. So he had, you know, sort of marginal success. One of those guys that never quite got there. In the early 70s, you know, you had TV shows. You know, Glenn Campbell had a TV show. Barbara Mandrell had a show. Johnny Cash had a show. All these country music shows. Billy brought in his friend Merle Haggard, and he brought in Marty Robbins and filmed pilots of a variety show. You know, it's it's funny to see him in the early 70s with his hair kind of done up like a rock and roll guy would wear it. And he had a big old huge medallion. <laughs> but so he, he did these two pilots and tried to get him, tried to sell them and nobody picked him up. But he was just right there on the fringe. But he was one of these guys, really just a handsome, handsome guy. Red Simpson said that he would like walk into a bar with uh, Billy Mize and he might as well be invisible because <laughs> all eyes were on Billy Mize. That's the, a nice little slogan. All eyes were on Billy Mize. The dreamboat of Bakersfield. He was the dreamboat of Bakersfield, yeah. So Red Simpson. Red Simpson. Um, how, do we, how do we talk about Red Simpson? Is this where the trucks come in? Yeah, this is where the trucks come in. But first I got to tell you about young Red Simpson. So, so Bill Woods was a big star back in the day. He was the band leader at the uh, Blackboard. Buck Owens was in his band for a time. But before Buck Owens joined, he had a bass player by the name of uh, Buster Simpson. Buster Simpson's little brother idolized these guys. That was young Red. Red was always talking about how he's going to sneak in, and he had learned to play the piano a little bit, and he, he just wanted – he was determined to be a country music star. And he hung out, hung around outside the uh, Rhythm Rancho, this little tiny honky-tonk out on South Union Avenue, and uh, with a shoe shine kit, he would shine the shoes of cowboys walking up in their boots. And one day, uh, Tex Ritter showed up. Tex Ritter was performing at the at the Rhythm Rancho, and uh, young Red, probably ten or eleven years old, runs up to him, "Mr. Ritter, Mr. Ritter, can I shine your shoes? Can I shine your boots?" And Tex took pity upon him and said, "Oh, well, sure you can, young man." And he handed him some boots, and he said, "I'm going to go in here and do this or do that, and I'll come back and get the boots." So uh, Red works the brush and works his cloth and gets those boots just polished up beautifully. And uh, Tex Ritter comes walking back out, looks at the boots and says, boy, you shine my best green boots black. Oh. Grabs him by the hair and shakes him and Red runs off and cries. And and then Tex feels bad. And he says, well, come on back over here. I guess you did a pretty good job after all. And he gave him a dollar instead of the quarter that he was asking for. Mm. So that was sort of Red's first brush with fame. He got himself a job uh, playing piano in a bar, and he was good enough that they kicked the other guy out. Uh, but before the other guy got kicked out, he got into the piano and mistuned it all up. So uh, Red's first night on the piano didn't work out so well. But they got the piano fixed, and Red became a regular. So he's writing songs on a regular basis. The rumor is that he has all these songs he's trying to sell in a suitcase, he carries around this little metal suitcase, and he got the nickname Suitcase Simpson because he's trying to always pitch his songs. Right around 1960, truck driving songs were were big. You had Red Sovine. There were four or five. Every record label had had its own star who performed songs that were you know themed on on truck driving. And Capitol Records wanted to do this as well. Ken Nelson was determined to get a, a truck driving song singer. So he contacted Merle Haggard. Will you be my truck driving song guy? And Merle said, 
No, I, I got enough going on here. <laughs> I think I'm doing fine without writing. Fortunately for history. <laughs> Fortunately for history. Red's, I'll do it. I'll do it. So sure enough, uh, he recorded three or four albums where he's on the cover. He's got like a longshoreman's knit cap on. Somebody uh, once asked Red, you know, what do you know about truck driving? Red says, nothing. What are you doing it for? He says, M-O-N-E-Y. <laughs> you know, he had a few songs that charted. One of them was called uh, I'm a Truck. And it's actually where he takes on the persona of the truck. Hello, I'm a truck. You've heard songs about truck drivers many times. Their stories told how they pulled out of Pittsburgh for six days on the road about the Feather River Canyon and climbing the old grapevine. That old roadhouse down in Texas and the girls they've left behind. You've heard their tales of daring, and I think that's just fine. But if you can spare a minute, well, I'd like to tell you mine. There'd be no truck drivers if it wasn't for us trucks. No double clutching gear, jamming coffee, cranking nuts. They'll drive their way in and they have all the luck. There'd be no truck drivers if it wasn't for us trucks. Red was hilarious. He was a hilarious guy. He was another guy that probably deserved, you know, fate didn't deal him the, the fame that it, it dealt to uh, Buck and Merle. But, you know, after uh, Buck Owens passed away and Merle Haggard had passed away, the Country Music Hall of Fame opened this uh, Bakersfield Sound exhibit. It was supposed to be open for just a year. They, it took over one entire floor at the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville. And uh, it was so successful, they kept it on for a second year. They wanted somebody representative of the Bakersfield Sound, and they brought in Red Simpson as sort of the host. They flew him back there several times, and he, he sort of presided over a, a number of events. And it was kind of cool because, uh, you know, he kind of got the due that he never, you know, he's not in the Hall of Fame. He never became a country music millionaire. But but for those two years, he had a lot of big stars, Nashville stars, come up to him and say, wow, you're the Red Simpson. And it was really nice to see that happen for him. That's awesome. Not everybody gets that. Yeah. Yeah. You said Dwight Yoakam is still kind of carrying the torch. Do you, do you see the influence of the Bakersfield sound anywhere else? Yeah, you, you see it once in a while. Yeah, you know, Brad Paisley pays, you know, homage to to Buck and Merle, you know, when he talks about his music, but I, I don't hear it in his music all that much. It is sometimes hard to find Bakersfield in current country music, but a good place to look is Austin, Texas, which has really taken over that position as the counterweight to Nashville. If you're looking for a life of luxury. The first name on the list is usually a band called the Derailers. You can hear why Buck Owens invited them to play his birthday party in 1999, but they haven't made a record since 2008. Dale Watson lives in Austin, too. He's got some Bakersfieldy songs, but he's usually got more of a rockabilly lean to him. Then there's Dave Alvin. All the pills you kept beside your bed were never enough to ease your mind. He definitely has his Merle Haggard moments, although he also plays a lot of rock and blues. And people often mention the Mavericks. 
Their discography definitely has some honky-tonk in it, but their most recent album has strings, horns, a Julio Iglesias cover, but then it also has Flaco Jimenez, who played on Streets of Bakersfield. So yeah, it's hard to follow the thread of something that never was a single thread in the first place. But most of the elements of the Bakersfield sound are still around, somewhere or other. We're T for Texas, T for Tennessee. In the mid-70s, as Bakersfield's star was on the wane, outlaw country began to happen in Texas and in Nashville. Artists like Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, Jesse Coulter, Tom Paul Glazer started making music that was more raw than what was coming out of the big studios. If you don't want me, mama, you sure don't have to stall. Country also spilled over into rock, and vice versa, especially in Southern California. You can hear a through line from Merle at the bar to the Flying Burrito Brothers in Sin City. This old town filled with sin, it'll swallow you in if you got some to burn. And from there, you could go to Emmylou Harris or the Rolling Stones or Beachwood Sparks or the Grateful Dead or First Aid Kit. This is Sturgill Simpson. who sings like Merle and has guitar licks like Buck. The Fender Telecaster remains a really potent way to signal an allegiance to traditional honky-tonk or early rock and roll or surf music, and it's not weird at all these days to record with your own band. And the, boys still working on the, sound. And the fan culture really is international. People all over the world are listening to records made in Bakersfield 50 years ago, and they're making the sound their own. There are thriving country music scenes in Japan, Scandinavia, Australia, Canada, Brazil, that all have a fair amount of honky-tonk in them. So So maybe the Bakersfield sound went away. And maybe it went everywhere. We did think we were done with the show at this point, but as we were talking about a final song to play us out, we discovered a mutual interest in perhaps the earliest strand of Bakersfield prehistory, the murder ballad. Content warning, this is exactly what it sounds like. So in, uh, I believe it was 1755, there's this broadsheet that's making the rounds. Broadsheet being this handwritten lyric, a long poem. And it's about, it's your classic boy meets girl Boy falls in love with girl, girl jolts boy, boy murders girl, boy throws girl into river. It's an old story. It's an old story. And this one takes place on the River Thames in London. Now was I was found apprentice, I was apprentice to the mill, and I served me master tune for more than seven years. Until I took up to court in With a lust with a rolling line And I promised that I'd marry her In the month of sweet July I promised I would marry her If she didn't mean deny I went unto her sister's house about half past eight at night And little did she think that I Would show her any spite 
took her by the lily white hand, and I kissed her cheek and chin. But I had no thoughts of murder in her, nor in no evil way. Fast forward to uh, about 20 years or so to a song called The Wexford Girl. It's the same song, only this one takes place on the River Slaney in Ireland. As I pull this take out from the edge And I crater on the crown And the blood from that poor innocent girl come trinkling through the ground. Down on the bending knee she fell and slurred for mercy cried. Oh, come spare the life of a innocent girl, for I am not fit to die. Same story, same murder ballad is what they are. Fast forward to maybe 20 years later, and we are in Lexington, Massachusetts. She fell upon her bending knees, oh mercy did she cry. Says Eddie, dear her, don't murder me, for I'm not fit to die. He did not offend her mercy cry, but he struck her all the more. Still it's all the innocent blood up here that I could never restore. A few years later, it turns up in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's the Knoxville girl. Then it turns up uh, as the Waco girl, Waco, Texas. Poor girl thrown into the river. The uh, murdering boy meets his demise at the end as well. About three weeks or later, the Waco girl was found a-floating down the waters which ran through Waco town. they taken me on suspicion. They locked me up in jail. I had no one to comfort me, no one to go my bail. So the, the Waco girl was actually played by people in northeastern Oklahoma. And when they came west with the Dust Bowl migration, they brought the Waco girl with them. Faith Petrick, who worked for the uh, federal government helping with these uh, labor camps, found the lyrics to the Waco girl in Arvin, California. The name of this song is Waco Girl. It was taught me by a little migrant girl by the name of Dorothy Ledford down in the Indio camp in 1938. And at this point, we realize just how far this, this thing has come. So 1975, you have this kid, this 
stoner kid uh, in Petaluma, California, who goes out and buys an album by uh, a band called The Outlaws. They had this song called Green Grass and High Tides, right? It's this rock anthem that goes on for eight screeching minutes of, you know, dueling guitars. On that same album is The Knoxville Girl. Go down, go down, Knoxville Girl, You know, little does this kid realize in 1975 that he's listening to a song that has traveled 3,000 miles over 225 years to get to his turntable. I mean, that's a migration story that uh, I love that story that expresses how music, like language, like, you know, so much in culture moves, moves with people. And so we finish with one last river, Kern River, of course, which runs down to Bakersfield in the San Joaquin Valley from the mountains of the Sierra Nevada. Not actually another tour stop for the Oxford Girl, but you could hear it loosely in the same lineage. Merle Haggard initially recorded the song in 1985, and his voice then at 48 is the classic country baritone. Smooth, subtle, and rich. This is a later version, re-recorded in 2007 for a hits compilation sold at Cracker Barrel. Merle was notoriously bad with money, and the phrase living legend, don't pay the bills by itself. But I'm actually really glad that we have this version too. His voice at 70 has this leathery creak to it. He can't quite nail those subtle ornaments anymore, but you hear the ghosts of them. And there's this poignance to it, the kind of thing that makes music writers talk about the consciousness that he was at the end of his life. But considering his rough and rowdy ways, Merle Haggard could have thought he was going to die any number of times over the years, and he actually had almost another decade after he recorded this, long enough for the Kennedy Center honors and five more albums. But whatever, it's country music, full of poetry and bullshit, running on downstream and always looking back. I'll never swim Kern River again It was there that I met her It was there that I lost my best friend Now I live in the mountains I drifted up here with the wind I may drown in still water But I'll never swim Kern River I grew up in an oil town, but my gusher never came in. This has been episode seven of Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest was Robert E. Price. His book, The Bakersfield Sound, How a Generation of Displaced Okies Revolutionized American Music, came out of his series of articles in the newspaper, The Bakersfield Californian. Hey, this show is recorded, edited, and produced entirely by me. And guess what? I do the guest booking, too. So if you want to be my guest enthusiast about cumbia or trap or Cambodian psychedelia or New Jack Swing, hit me up. Send me an email at everyrecorderevercorded at gmail.com. Literally any genre in the world is fair game, except for the seven we've already done. You can check out the archive at everyrecorderevercorded.com, where you'll also find extended show notes too big and exciting to fit in your podcast app. Stuff to read, stuff to look at, more stuff to listen to, including a streamable playlist of everything we heard today, plus a ton more. Oh, and a contact link if you missed that email address and a mailing list for if you want to be the first to hear about new episodes. Thanks to Mara Blair, Anne Gerard of the Daniel Boone Regional Library, Mara Blair, Rolf Tomlinson of the LA The Public Library, the entire San Francisco Public Library, and Mara Blair for invaluable research assistance. 
Big thanks also to my road trip co-driver forever, Walter Lang. This show goes out to my favorite singers of cowboy songs, Nate and Chloe. This one's for you from Aunt Hannah. Do come back in a few months for episode eight, which will be a whole new show with a whole new guest about a whole different genre of music. And hey, thank you too for listening. Let me drown in still water, go down, never swim Kern River again.